Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where AA members share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. My 64th interview in this podcast series features Victoria H., a fascinating woman I met on a Zoom meeting during the pandemic. She is the first guest I've had on the show whose spouse, Wes H., shared his story on an earlier podcast. They got sober together within days of each other over 30 years ago. I have to admit, hearing both their stories provides a unique context to their lives before and after getting sober. Victoria's story stands very much on its own. Raised in a military home by a mother with bipolar disorder and a physically abusive father, her life as the oldest of three children was further complicated by frequent moves around the world. The alcohol she found early helped ease the madness and numb the traumatic events she experienced along the way. Access to alcohol by hook or crook on military bases fueled self-destructive behavior that followed her into adulthood. By the time she got sober in 1992, alcoholism had taken a huge toll on her body, exacerbating medical conditions that required 31 surgeries over the years. Through it all, Victoria's unceasing involvement in AA and working with others helped her survive death's numerous importunities. One of her last surgeries during the past year was literally do or die, and she credits Wes and her AA family for pulling her through with prayers and the collective healing energy of love. My interview with Victoria on today's AA Recovery Interviews podcast runs a little bit longer than others, but flies by as her story unfolds. It's a story that helps further define the phrase, experience, strength, and hope. So, grab a cuppa and become engrossed for the next hour and ten minutes in the story of my friend and AA sister, Victoria H. Hi, I'm Victoria. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Victoria. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. I'm so happy that you're able to do this. You and I have gotten to know each other over the past, oh, close to two years now in the meeting that we go to every week, and I've admired and enjoyed the many things that you've had to say. There was a period of time, though, when you were you were not in that meeting, uh, but we would hear about you from other people in that particular meeting. What What was going on at that time? Well, at that time, I had a birth defect I was unaware of um, that was actually in the pancreas. The, there's two ducts, that, uh-huh. the long one, and there's one that's up and then one under. Well, the, the one that was below it had never hooked up, so I was been operating on one duct my whole life. So, I, yeah, it's, it's a rare thing that happens. Um, so I didn't know I had it, and then I went to Mississippi and ate a bunch of barbecue and and then I came back, and I thought I had a really bad stomach ache. Uh, I called Wes, and he said, get to the emergency room. So I did. And then they found that my, uh, what they call lipase, which I didn't even know right. what a lipase was at that time. But So what they found out is that I had, like, crazy numbers, like 28,000 
lie pace and you're supposed to have like i don't know 500 ish somewhere three 500 mm-hmm. in there i the i think the reason why I'm, i've been able to live as long as i've been able to live is because i stopped drinking and i stopped drinking in my well, uh-huh. I was 35 if i hadn't had stopped then i wouldn't be talking to you now because i would have been completely clueless yeah. of it and by the time they had done that my pancreas would have been so bad off that um I would probably have ended up with pancreatic cancer. Uh-huh. I was here in Colorado, and there was nobody who knew how to deal with pancreativism is the name of it. I ended up at UC Health. They did a, a, a stent. Uh, I was able to get the, I think it was like the second time I was able yeah. to get the stent. The first time it just came out, and the second time it stayed. And so that September of 20, I was. I went in for another stint, and then um, that one mm. didn't stay in. And then <laughs> getting another stint in 21, I ended up with five stints, oh four or five stints. And then Kaiser said, "Stop. We can't do anymore. We're not going to do anymore because we're thinking we're yeah, hurting more yeah. than we're helping." We had already talked to the people out uh-huh. in Memphis. Because this guy like was one of the top five guys in the country that deals with pancreases. Mm-hmm. There are other procedures that can fix this. So he says, but you have to be a good candidate for it. And we went, okay. And so he went in and did another stint because they had to see if it worked. So I went in for another stint uh-huh. in Memphis. And then I had that for about uh-huh. four days, four or five days to make sure. And then, so they said, good candidate and uh, then they booked me immediately in for the surgery and then when they this particular surgery they don't go inside and do the surgery um they they actually had to cut me open so i had like a a scar like but they did a great job though so we we -hmm. took off and came home Mm -hmm. and um uh, just because everything, the, the, the COVID, everything was ramping yeah. up. We made it back home all right. And, um, and then I just, it was just a matter of just healing up from there, you know. I really want to thank you for relating the whole story to me because mm-hmm. I would get little bits and pieces of it in the meeting mm-hmm. when people would report on Victoria and everybody was, uh, you were in everybody's thoughts and you were in everybody's yeah, prayers. I felt that. And, and obviously mm-hmm. that kind of stuff works uh, because here you are. But you mentioned about the damage that you might have done to your pancreas with the alcohol and what might have happened had you not stopped drinking when you did. This is my segue into us talking about Victoria, Mm -hmm. the recovering alcoholic. Was there a a family history of alcoholism in your family? What was it like in your family of origin when you were a kid? With my parents, I don't think that they were really alcoholics. I think mm-hmm. my mom uh, was dealing a little bit more with bipolar, untreated bipolar. Mm. And um, so she would be periodic or mm-hmm. event drinking, you know. Right. And my father, he had his pain pills. He yeah. was fine. And when he mm. didn't, that's when he started to drink. I think there was a little bit of that, you know, pills with alcohol, but he never took off on the alcohol thing. It was the pills that was his deal. Did he have some kind of p- chronic pain or whatever? Or Yeah, he'd had a um, 
car accident that had messed yeah. up his leg. So he, I don't know exactly how much actual pain he was in, but he, he really used it to get the, the, the pain medication. So, I mean, he guarded his pain medication very closely. Yeah. So there was uh-huh. never, never crossed my mind to even take his medication or anything. Um, I started out drinking really young. My first daily drinking was with my grandfather when he would come home. He, they lived in Kennebunk, Maine, right. and he worked, he worked at the shoe factory there. And when he would come home and he'd sit in the rocking chair and I would sit with him and, and I'd just have a few hits off of the long neck schlitz that he had. Uh-huh. And then we would take the dogs uh, to the Kennebunk Beach. They'd run and run and run. We'd come back, and my grandmother would have dinner ready. You know, if you have a memory of drinking that you want to recapture, that was the memory I want to recapture. Yeah, that sounds idyllic. Yeah, so that so my drinking was trying to get back to there. So you you were living in Kenny Bunk at that point? Yeah, I was living with my grandparents. So I, okay. I was more brought up by my grandparents than I was by my parents. Yeah, so what happened that, that you ended up? having them raise you? You know, I think that my mother, yeah, I don't think my mother could handle it. And so she just went here. (laughs) Because of her bipolar? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. She had a little bipolar and some, you know, maybe postpartum depression kind of thing. And in those days, it wasn't really recognized, was it? No, it really wasn't. And there wasn't any medications, really, mm-hmm. um, in the 50s, you know. Yeah. Uh, they were still doing lobotomies in the 50s, you know. I had a grand... My mother's mother, after her final uh, delivery, she was had postpartum so severely that she was institutionalized. She was put away in Bellevue in New York mm-hmm. and never got out. She died in there. And, uh, of course, back then, nobody knew from it. And, and that's where I think some of the depression in my family kind of comes from, is through that lineage, plus on my dad's side, is rife. Mm-hmm. You mentioned a brother. Are those the only siblings? I have a brother and a sister. Um, uh-huh. My brother came after me, and my sister is like about six years younger than I am. She's still alive. I, my brother has since passed. He he became schizophrenic uh-huh. early uh, when he was about 18, 19, right in there. Very, very smart, smart guy, you know, mm. high IQ kind of stuff, you know. But he was also self-medicating. <laughs> yeah, he was self-medicating with hallucinogens. <laughs> And he drank, but, you know, I think the hallucinogens and that, he was just trying to self-medicate the, what was going on. And my father was awful to him. He beat the crap out of that poor kid. Mm. He beat the crap out of me, too, but. He did, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, but he beat the crap out of that. The only one that didn't get the crap beat out of him was my little sister. Yeah. um, But my brother and I. We we really got it hard with the physical abuse. Yeah, that's how it was in my family as well. And and as yeah. it moved down through the four kids, the the final kid gets it the least because by that point, either they've gotten most of their aggression onto the children or whatever. But so you got physically physically abused when when you were kids. So did that make the transition to your grandparents? How did you feel about that at the time? Um, it was something that was my safe safe harbor was my grandparents. How old were you when, when you went to the grandparents and did the your other siblings go with you at that time or was it just you? I went very early on. Then they, my parents took me back when I was about 
four, five. Mm. And then I'd go back to my grandparents when I was about six. And then they took me back at six because wow. my, my mother had her, my sister. Yeah. And so they needed someone to take care of my sister, which I'm kind of going, really? I was too young to do that. But yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> I'm, I'm six. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, so that's pretty much when I started taking over the mother duties um, with my sister. Um, and I always had big sister duty taking care of my brother, you know, since we were so close in age. I always had to take care of my brother. Mm. And then... My sister was kind of the baby baby, you know, and that's, uh, you know, when I came back, we were living in northern Florida. My dad was in the Air Force, so we moved around a lot. This ping-ponging back between your your parents and your grandparents. How old were you when you were sitting on his knee and doing the walks with the dogs? I was three and four. So you started drinking, but that was at, at his behest, not necessarily something that you wanted to do, or, or were you seeking that out? I think I was seeking it at that time. Yeah, uh-huh. I really do. Um, by the time I went back to my parents at five, they would have all these parties. I'd start hitting on the drinks. So then I realized, oh, they have parties, but at a certain point, they need a bartender. <laughs> oh, <laughs> being the precocious child that I was. Yeah. And so I learned how to make, make people's drinks. How old were you? Seven, eight. Seven-year-old bartender. Hey, by the time I was 10, they bought me one of those little red Mr. Boston, had all the, all the drinks in it. Yeah. Oh my So God. I had my own coffee, <laughs> my own coffee. There was this thing called G.I. Gin. I don't know if you remember that or not. It's a whiskey, lemon, and honey. So if you get a cold, you do the G.I. Gin. And and so, I mean, I remember in second and third grade, you know, excusing myself, going into the bathroom and doing my little G.I. Gin. My goodness. (laughs) But you could really see the behavior of my grades. (laughs) It sounds like it was very, very progressive. progressive. It also sounds like alcohol robbed you of a, a childhood in a lot of ways, didn't it? Yes, it did. Yeah, yeah. That plus having to take care of your siblings? Yeah, and then I also dealt with some sexual abuse in all of this. Mm-hmm. So there, there, <laughs> there was an element of drinking to not feel that kind of experience. Yeah, so drinking to feel what you felt on your grandfather's knee... Was the, safe. Was safe. So you drank for the safety, and then you drank to blot out the, the horror. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. Tough. And so, and so, it's just, you know, and it just was over. So it was a serial. So it was over years. I mean, yeah. people have one event, and it messes them up for life. And I'm kind of going, <laughs> just, yeah. I, I don't even want to count. <laughs> so I'm not even counting. I started counting, and I went, I'm not going to count anymore. <laughs> Not a good idea. <laughs> I had one of the women I had on the show yeah. uh, last year. She she was the victim of some horrendous sexual abuse. And, yeah. uh, you know, I had to call her up after we did the show to, to just confirm with her that it was okay that I put it out there. And she said, yeah, I've done all the work I can possibly do. And she really was at peace with it. But, you know, yeah. she's also in her 60s. And, uh, but all the work that she had to do over the years to, to get through that. It's tough work. Did you find that you had to go through a lot to, to deal with that in later years? 
Um, I think it really came down um, for me when I was, when I got sober. Huh. You said that was I didn't at, have my medicine. That was at 35. Yeah. So you yeah. lived from the time you were a kid, drinking from three or four years old, all the way through grammar school into junior high junior and high, high school? Junior high, high school, uh, and early college. Did it get worse over the years, or were you maintaining some kind of functionality while you were drinking? I have a high level of functionality with the drinking, because I've been drinking for so long. Uh, yeah, I get that. Because I, I, <laughs> I think you're, you're, you know, I was a functional drunk, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, um, and, um, and I did a lot of really cool stuff. I mean, I, I think when I, to Turkey when I was 10, I was mm-hmm. there 10, 11, 11, 12, t- those two years. Mm-hmm. And um, that's when it really took off. I was, we were buying bottles of wine because they, they didn't have an age thing there. You just, yeah, kids sure. could go buy bottles of wine uh-huh. and bring them home for dinner. And so they would give us money and send us off, which was insane. Yeah. I would never do this with my child. Yeah, and, a 10 year old. And, and a 10 year old. And, <laughs> and both of us, my, my buddy, he was 10, so we were the same age, you know? Oh my God. I started buying the bottles of wine. And, um, and, and we would drink it, but I found that I was drinking more than anybody else. And then we would head out. I lived right across the beach of the Marmar Sea. Mm-hmm. And we would go out across the beach and they'd have boats flipped over, you know. And huh. we'd go out there and sit against a boat at night and drink our wine <laughs> and then come back. And, and, and I was still making drinks for everybody and stuff. And then uh, we got back to the States. I stayed with my Nana and Granddad. Well, my Nana, she, my Granddad was down in Florida at the time. But I was staying with my Nana and um, and all of the, you know, the women. There was really strong yeah. women around yeah. her uh-huh. that was just fabulous. Um, Some good role models, huh? Really, they were very feminists. So you're, you're a 10-year-old kid at this point. When, when you were in that house with all those women, what, what did they see in Victoria with regards to your drinking? I didn't, ha- I was a periodic, so it wasn't like I had to have it every day, you know, so, but when I drank, <laughs> I drank a lot, but no, I, and that was, I think was the hardest thing for me to really think that I had a problem. Yeah. was because I was a periodic. And so, and with that whole idea of being a periodic, you drink, but you drink a lot. And then you stop for a period of time, you know? And then if you have something sufficient that you'd stop for, you'd do that, you know? And then later, then later down the road, that ability to be able to stop becomes the evidence and proof that you're not an alcoholic, right? Absolutely, because the time... Because you can stop. You can stop... But I think that the thing, by the time I came in at 35, uh, the, the window had gotten so tight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wasn't drinking every day, per se, but I certainly was drinking every weekend, and I was drinking a lot. What did your life look like? It sounded like you were traveling, you know, you were being relocated a lot. That must mm-hmm. have made it really hard to fit in or make friends. Uh, did you find that, that drinking helped with that? No, I'm I'm the drunk that has everybody's my friend. Okay, yeah, as long as you're drunk. Well, well, not really. Pretty much anybody's my yeah. friend. 
Okay, well, that's good. <laughs> yeah. But, <laughs> I get it. Yeah. Even sobriety. Yeah, so when I got out of Turkey, which I was drinking a lot, drinking yeah. a lot for surely for a 10, 11-year-old, uh-huh. um, I wasn't, every weekend I'd get a bottle of wine, but, you know, I would, I was always kind of hitting on it, you know, not getting yeah. drunk, but... I was always maintaining, and I guess would be the thing there. Kind of set the pattern for your life then, didn't it? That binge drinking? Yes, it did. And then when I came back, and I couldn't drink because nobody was drinking, because my grandmother didn't drink. Um, Uh But I think there were people in her life that did drink when she was growing up, and so she she was more of the Al-Anon. Okay, I see. And uh, the first... (laughs) <laughs> and the first place I was exposed to, uh, I got a plaque with the serenity prayer on it. jeez. <laughs> uh, oh, I think I was about eight years old when I got the plaque. <laughs> Had no idea about the, you know, about Alcoholics Anonymous or anything. So as you went through junior high and high school, what did those years look like for you? And did you, when did you first start uh, noticing consequences occurring from your drinking? I think I, I noticed consequences back in fourth grade, fifth grade, maybe sixth grade. <laughs> so you were getting in trouble? Well, I, I was a talker. So so you know how they are with the talkers in the class. You know, so I, I got in a lot of trouble with my teacher. And then, you know, at that time, this is in northern Florida, so they still gave you the on the, on the, the switch, butt. Yeah. yeah, the switch on uh-huh. the butt. And um, actually, it was the pointer stick, man. <laughs> I hated that one. Sting. And so, you know, and if I had been in her class, she would have failed me. But we moved. (laughs) Moving always helped me. (laughs) Got out of that one, huh? Got out of that one. And there was just really no place to get the liquor or booze or anything. You just, you had no access to it. And because my parents didn't like really drink, there was no booze or liquor in the house. So I would find people that I could go drink with. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't a lonely drinker, um, uh, uh-huh. drink alone kind of thing. So after Turkey, I mean after Key West, we went to the Philippines. That's hmm. when it really started taking off on me. Uh, it was uh-huh. during the Vietnam War. That was seventy to seventy-two. I was there. Uh, I was a, a freshman and sophomore in high school, uh-huh. and. Um, you had what they called little sorry sorry stores. We lived off base and had little sorry sorry stores. They were just basically a little convenience store. But they had beer, this beer called uh, San Miguel beer. And then they would have, they had this terrible rot gut. Um, did I drink it? Yes, I did drink it because it was so bad. But yeah. um, so I started drinking a lot more beer then because all the liquor in the military you can only have so many you can only buy so much a month or something like that Uh so i started kind of drinking a little bit more daily then and i tried to smoke cigarettes but i got so sick off of it i couldn't do it how about marijuana was that prevalent at all down there um you couldn't get like straight marijuana everything was what they called tie sticks which was marijuana soaked in opium i just didn't get into that and I drank. So, you know, I started getting out where I could drink, you know, whose house mm-hmm. I could drink at and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. So I had some people up the street and <laughs> just hit all these oh, different yeah. places. And I'd have just a little bit, but, you know, wasn't anything to them. But, you know, if you ha- add it all up, you know, I was I was taken care of for that day. 
we moved on base. And when we moved on mm-hmm. base, things became a little bit more interesting. I couldn't just go to the Sorry Sorry store and get a beer. So I thought about this and said, huh, <laughs> there's got to be a solution here. What would happen is it would be me and two other girls would go up uh-huh. and, to a guy on base and say, hey, uh-huh. we have the money. Do you have the chits? You know, if they would just give us, you know, if they would go in and get the get get it for us, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that would be great. Um, mm-hmm. But sometimes it was a situation, and I'm. It took me. I, you know, it wasn't really until I was doing my inventory, you know, and you uh-huh. you come up to people you'd harmed, you know, and I felt. And looking back on this little game that we were playing as teenagers uh, with these GIs um, was that we, because this is just so, I I have shame with this, so what it is is basically one of the girls, although she, she volunteered, I was the person doing the transaction. She was sometimes the person that was Greasing the wheels of the transaction, <laughs> you might say. So she would do some sort of sexual favor for them getting us the liquor. And then the other gal was kind of between the two of us and making sure. Mm-hmm. So she was a little bit more involved on that end than I was. But I was the person making the, the I was doing the uh, cash stuff and, get, and taking possession of the alcohol. So, and if there was a need, because we were all in need and there was, yeah. well, you got to do this to get that, then we had someone who was happy to do that. I mean, it wasn't like she was forced or anything. She was happy to do oh, it. Oh, my. And, yeah, okay. But, but that shows you how messed up being around alcoholic families, the way that they grow up, you know, especially young girls who are sexually abused. And it wasn't really till I got sober and was working on these things that I really could recognize and go, oh, you know, she was sexually abused. No wonder she had no boundaries in this area. No, and it's so common for young girls to use that to get what they need because that's what. Yeah. Do you remember feeling any uh, regrets after it happened, or did you did you have any sense that it was wrong? At the time. I did, but you know what? You're drinking. Your inhibitions go down. Your, uh, what you will, the go to any lengths to get a drink, you know. Um, I know what that, I know what that is. You know, I have gone mm. to many, in any lengths to do that. Mm-hmm. We would have where, you know, some GIs would want to party with us, that kind of thing. And, um, and we would just get him so drunk, <laughs> you know. So you got you got what you you got what you wanted during that time, even though you had to had a had a compromise in ways that, looking back, should not have occurred. But they did. They did. I mean, I somehow I was able to escape. I, I just had this knack of being able to <laughs> leave at the right time. 
The consequence, I think, was academically. I started really doing poorly in my classes. Um, I was having a lot of fights with my parents at home. Um, I was experiencing an extraordinary war zone reality. Um, I would go to bed at night with, you know, automatic machine gun fire uh, way, way up in, on Huck Mountain. And then uh, I went with a guy, it was a friend of mine, we were going over to another friend's house and uh, it was off base and he'd never been off base. So I said, well, why don't you come with me? I know where the house is and I'd rather have somebody with me. I, I, I can't go by myself. And so I was, what, 15. So we jump in the back of a jeepney at the front gate of Clark Air Force Base. It was like a long run up and then it teed into the main highway that goes north and south the whole length of the Philippines. Uh, of the island. We're just about up to where the T is and we're going to make a left and then we start hearing gunfire. And there, you don't poke your head up and go, what's going on? <laughs> Especially if you're American. This guy didn't know he was first time off base, that kind of thing. I just grabbed him and just shoved him down and I went down and the jeepney driver was down and we were like waiting, you know, for what was going on and then it got real quiet. I talked to the jeepney driver. I said, we're American. We can't stick our head up. You stick your head up. Can you just carefully look up and see what's going on? He says, oh, he says, oh, mom, there's been a big massacre or something going on up, up the thing there. I went, okay. So we're stuck in the traffic and we're going on and on. We make the left finally. Breaks open enough for us to get to the street to where we're supposed to turn down. And the way they do it there is they block off everything. There's only one in and one out. And so we didn't have a choice but to stop. And by the time we got to where we were, all the emergency vehicles had passed us and had come right out in front of us. So we were behind the emergency vehicle. So they turned in and it had like two big jeepneys, like a it was apparently the mayor Mava Lockett. It was his crew. And they had all you know and the they got they got massacred, they got ambushed. And so they were dragging people out. I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't tell what they were. <laughs> you know, you knew they were humans, but they were so shot up. There wasn't anything really to see because it was just such a mess, you know? We're the first vehicle. <laughs> it's, we had to go through them to go into the place and everything happened on that in and out. I mean, it's two lanes there. So they were pulling people out. We're waiting and waiting. Well, about that time, the Filipinos start freaking out, man. And they were screaming and howling. And then you're getting, you can still, I'm still, still, I get a little, they were pressuring us in. Uh, you, you could feel the pressure of the people and the crazy, the crazy, uh, the emotional off the edge stuff, people falling on the ground, people screaming, people, I mean, it was just out of control. And we were like going, oh my God. And I'm just, and so I didn't want to plug into that. I knew what had happened. I know I'm 15. We're on our way to go where the booze is. And I'm kind of going, oh my God. You know, so I look down where we're at and there was so much blood, it pooled up like a, a pool, like a, and so I'm, I'm sitting there watching the blood rise up on the tires of the wheel. And I'm kind of glancing around a little bit. I'm making sure the guy with me, he's just like, he's just in shock, you know, and, and I really didn't have time to deal with him. I just kind of went, I just, I said, are you okay? He said, I'm, I'm, I'm good. And I said, okay. And then 
we finally get to go to go to our friend's house and they get the vehicles apart and we we can drive through finally um i'm looking out the back of the jeepney and they have mud flaps and they're just you could see the tire with all the blood coming off the mud flaps and i and that's what I remember. <laughs> it took me a, a while longer to actually remember the other parts and pieces of it. But the that's, I said, I cannot deal with this right now. Uh-uh. I can't deal with this. So I'm just going to have to set that over here. <laughs> Go get drunk. <laughs> and that's exactly what we did. And <laughs> So you were on that base for how long? For about, for another about a year and so you have your alcohol during all of this and we're still talking about high school in the interest of time if we could fast forward a bit let's say uh through high school into what you were doing until the first time you tried to stop or the first time you stopped for good what what did that all look like if we could kind of unpack some of that we came back uh we moved to san antonio texas and it was like uh, it was tough i came back uh, there was no getting what i was used to getting you know i'm used to getting seagram seven i'm used to giving canadian mm-hmm. club and then yeah. all of a sudden i'm down to boone's farm so then the hustle was how to get to get stuff and i said I have no money. My parents will not give me, well, they never gave me an allowance. I said, look, I have the (laughs) know-how and Mm -hmm. you got the money. I think I can make it happen. (laughs) And so we would go and hang up around the ice houses or the, and we'd go around there and I would go, that's the person we can get the liquor from (laughs) because I know who they were. And And they said, yeah. And I said, yeah, so give me the money. And I'd go up and I'd talk to him and I'd feel him out because I didn't need I didn't need a cop. And he'd go, yeah, sure, let me go in and get you a bottle. And I said, would you mind getting us a couple because there's a few of us out here at Saturday night. And they said, yeah. Right. So it's just me and my girlfriend and we got a couple of other girlfriends. And he said, no worry. So we'd go in and get a couple of Boone's Farm, you know, I mean, Strawberry Hill. And I'm just sitting there going, oh, my God, I did all this work for this. <laughs> For this. So there was no no getting hard liquor at this point, was there? No. That was what, you know, most teenagers had access to, unless their parents mm. had something going on in their house, you know. And then mm-hmm. from there, then the pot and the other drugs were all part of that. But I just kind of saw that as me having more alcohol for myself, because they would do drink a little bit and I would drink more. So it all worked out. Um, uh-huh. I... Um, was having a lot of fights with my parents at home. Beyond high school, uh, what was going on in your life until the point at which you started having trouble? Well, I met Wes. I was had just turned 21. We started being together, although we did meet at the Swampwater Saloon. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and uh, we were both drinking at that time. And I was trying to cut back on my drinking, I think, at that time. Things were just not going in a direction that I felt that they should go in. Did it ramp up after you met Wes? Did that drinking actually ramp back up or were you able to cut back? Uh, At first, we were drinking a lot together. And then we kind of said, you know, we really need to kind of cut back on this. And I said, yes, we do. And so we stopped the hard liquor stuff because I saw how it wasn't working for Wes at all. <laughs> uh-huh. So we threw away all the hard liquor, and we just decided that beer and maybe some 
some wine or something like that was where we were going to go. The two of us said, you know, we really need to watch this, you know, um, Hmm. because we really enjoy this a lot. And I said, yeah, we do, but we're kind of doing it where it's getting in the way, you know. How was it getting in the way for you? What, what, What was going on that made you feel like you had to cut back? Well, we had both had gone back to college, so it was getting away of studying. We had start playing music. It was starting to get in the way of all that. You know, you can't do things. And you were noticing the connection relatively early on yes. between the drinking and what was going on, the effects of drinking in the rest of your life. Yeah, and I think that's because when I was in the Philippines, okay, when Bill yeah. Wilson died, I was in the Philippines, okay? And they actually put a big picture of him. I mean, like a, you know, like uh-huh. poster size picture. And they hung it up in the hallway. And they were wow. honoring Bill Wilson. And I went, wow, he must have been really somebody that they did this to. So I knew the picture of Bill Wilson. I knew the name of Bill Wilson. I didn't know about AA. And so uh, I met Wes at the Swamp Water Saloon. This was a biker bar, had turned into a biker bar. Wes was there because a buddy of his said, hey, this is where the girls are. And, yeah. you know, the girls can drink for free and we pay whatever it is we pay, but they don't, they can drink for free. <laughs> and so that's where we, we met. And I saw him standing against a wall with a big pitcher of beer and, a, you know. He looked so Texan with that drinking that pitcher of beer. He he was your guy, wasn't he? Well, yeah, that night was the night. Yeah, that yeah. yeah. Isn't that amazing. We 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 did the Cinderella thing, man. We went up yeah. and danced a slow dance, and it was just uh-huh. like magic. The whole room. I mean, not just us feeling it, but we were right. dancing, and actually, people physically moved like about five feet from us. And we're dancing so cool. around us. It was, the sh- I mean, it was just like Cinderella. You know what I mean? Yeah. I can't. Yeah. I, I, I didn't know that those were actually real moments, but um, yeah. So we, that was pretty much it from that point. The Swamp Water Saloon. We lived together because I had the issue with getting married. Uh, Wes would have gotten married right then, when we met. But I just went. I just can't do it right now. Can we live together? My solution. Right. Can we live together until it doesn't matter, and then we'll get married? And he said, Sure. Why don't we do that? And I said, Okay. So we lived together for about three years, and then um, mm-hmm. and then we kind of looked at each other and said, Yeah, it's time. And we got married. And then that began our our, our adventure in life and music. We start that's when I really started yeah. playing harmonica was with Wes at that time. When I started playing with Wes was the first time I started playing uh, accompanying somebody instead of playing, you know, because I, I wasn't a blues person, you know, I didn't I didn't I don't come from those roots. I, I come from the folky roots, so we'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, check out my Big Book podcast, the complete unabridged audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an engaging word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of all 11 chapters and original stories, including rare stories not published in the third or fourth editions. Listen to all 85 episodes by subscribing to the Big Book podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Or listen on bigbookpodcast.com. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo, a first edition big book wearing headphones. And we're back. 
You know what's interesting about this interview today is that I, of course, interviewed Wes at an earlier point, and so it was interesting to get his his perspective. Uh, we were trying to keep the focus pretty much on what it had been like being an alcoholic in his life, but it was kind of interesting to hear him talk about the things that he went through, knowing that you went through those same things with him. Yeah. It sounds to me like you guys, would you say that your alcoholism paralleled over the years? What, what Were you guys in sync as alcoholics? Oh, yeah, I, I really think so. I'm more the outrageous alcoholic, you know, the person that's dancing on the pool table or, you know, you know, I'm bigger than life when I drink. And he's a little more reserved, isn't he? He's a little bit more reserved. I think that I would have a worse alcoholic story if I had not met Wes because he could see me when I was just going, whoo! <laughs> when I started to black out, he'd grab me and take me home. So you had a responsible alcoholic taking care of you and your alcoholism. Yeah, yeah, I did. Because, I mean, I probably, in the binging, I, I would be the one who drank the most, yeah. So you would binge until you blacked out, and then Wes would take over, and he would make sure that you were safe. Get me home. And take you home. I know from his story that he he came in before you or after you into the program? Or were you guys coming in right about the same time? I think he said something about a matter of days. Was it that soon yeah, after? Yeah, um, we had stopped drinking, and then we we went to Texas. <laughs> Which, this you was know, after you were out in L.A.? Yeah, we were in L.A., and we came back for Texas for Christmas. It was the first time that I really began to see what my alcoholism was, not drinking, having yet to go to a program, a meeting, mm -hmm. not really knowing what alcohol, I just stopped drinking, you know, mm. at the same time Wes did. And I said, well, okay, I'll, I'll stay sober too. Why not? So we went to, we would go to all these people's houses, and, and finally I said, I can't, I can't drink, you know? I mean, I had to leave the room, and I was shaking. Yeah. I, I said, Wes, I, I don't know if I can handle this. I mean, he said, uh, so we got through Texas, and we, we had one stop to do, and that was at his dad's house. So his dad was happy to see us, and he knows that I like Jameson whiskey a lot. And so he mm -hmm. pulled out this bottle of Jameson. It's Christmas time. We're going to share this bottle of whiskey. And I said, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> After everything I've been through, I need a freaking drink now. <laughs> so Wes, the sneaky, wily he didn't kick me. He didn't do anything. He didn't raise his mm -hmm. eyebrows. You know, the usual stuff. So he put his thumb in the thing. He drank like this, and he passed me the bottle. I thought he drank. Oh, he faked drinking? Oh, my God. He faked drinking instead of saying, no. You know, then I would have gone with him. Not happy, but I would have gone with him. But I saw him drink that, and I went, son of a bitch. That means this is my last drink. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> it was the 28th of December. So he handed me that bottle because all I could think about was that drink. I couldn't think about seeing mm. the signals. I think if he had given me signals, I don't think I would have seen him because all I had my eyeballs on was that, was that bottle. So I took the bottle and I tipped it up and I just started drinking it. I drank it and it just was so good. And I just was like, oh my God. And his dad was going, well, Vic, you know, you... That's a lot. <laughs> and I drank probably this much of the bottle. There was this oh much gosh. left. And, and I said, well, it was my last drink. 
<laughs> That's what I told his father. I said, I'm not drinking anymore. So how long were you dry before you took that drink? So it was a little over 30 days, I guess. But Wes still hadn't drank at that point. <laughs> so we know, we know at least from Wes's story, if for the, I would recommend to anybody listening to this that they go back and listen to his. Kind of neat how your stories jive. Was this the point at which Wes had actually been to AA out in California? We had yet to come into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous at that time. So right after that, right after Texas, we returned to California. I'm working as a dental assistant for the Stars and Beverly Hills and that stuff, um, which is where I met Paul. Uh-huh. Wes had talked to Paul, and Paul said, well, I'm going to be at this meeting on this date. And uh, we said, great, we'll meet you there. And that was my first meeting because I really was still drinking till we got to the Paul thing because I'd already drank, you know. And the 16th of January is when I, I came to see Paul speak. They identified at the end of the meeting, which I thought was kind of cool. I don't know if I would have identified. I got to listen to the meeting hear Paul share his share. He talked about that hole in the middle of you, that that God-shaped hole, and he's, you know, and how he put everything in there, couldn't mm-hmm. fill the hole up. So, you know, that was my hook, you know? And I said, oh God, I got the hole, I got the hole. Yeah, and so um, it wasn't even a thought of thinking it. Uh, they were going around the room and they they came up to me and my hand went up in the air and I went, So I said, you know, I think I'm an alcoholic. That's my first admission to an alcoholic. Now, Wes had been going to meetings prior to that. He's working doing freelance studio stuff in in our little Koreatown studio and uh, and really not really thinking very highly of himself, Uh you know, and he's having problems with that and um, drinking. When Wes gets drink, he gets dark. He doesn't shout at you. He doesn't hit. I've never been any of that stuff. I've never been abused by Wes. Mm-hmm. And I came home from work. And uh, I opened the front door, and I come in. And just as I was opening the door, I mean, it, the energy just leaked out on me. And I went, oh, shit. This is not good, what I'm walking into. And I just took my bag and I opened the door and I slid. Mm-hmm. I didn't even open the door like this. I opened the door, kind of came in this way, closed it, saw where he was at, and I saw it was really bad because he was almost in a fetal position and and he was crying. Just I didn't say anything at that point, and I just slid. I just my back and I just slid down the back of the door with my back to the door and was sitting right at the front door. And I, I just didn't say anything. Mm. And he just was there, and I said, you scare me. This is, this is officially scaring me. And you know how hard it takes, you know what it takes to scare me. Uh-huh. He says, what do you mean? I said, I said this room. And so I, I came in, and I just said, you know, um, why don't you go to some of those meetings Paul's been talking about? You know, and he was just like, well, yeah, we got to do something here. You know, this isn't working. And we had at that time, I was kind of keeping him together and we were trying to do pot to come off the alcohol. 
he was having these seizure things. I didn't know enough about alcoholism that they were alcoholic seizures, okay? He was craving it, and he was having a hard time with it, and he couldn't stop. Uh-huh. And he said, okay, you know, if you think this means that much to you, I'm not really exactly the words. <laughs> I mean, I was just freaked out. We got to... We got to do something, you know, go to the place right. Paul talked about. Uh-huh. I think I think it's a good place for us to start. Uh, he, dr- I wasn't driving by the time, by this time. <laughs> my, my alcoholism was, Victoria doesn't get to drive. So that Monday, he dropped me off at my work. So he got to that first meeting. How long was it until you followed up and came into the rooms? I came in that Thursday because I was working. And I couldn't, it was a morning meeting and I couldn't get to the meeting because I was working as the dental assistant thing. But I had Fridays off. Uh So I went to the Thursday meeting and then Friday I I got to go with Wes. But here's what's cute. So he got the book, 12 and 12, and the big book. So he picks me up at work about 5 30 6 o'clock and and as soon as mm-hmm. he picks me up i'm hearing about this meeting i'm hearing about everything about the meeting he was over the moon that was a different place friday night when he was about ready to blow his brains out which he did not tell me about for years i did not know about that years and years yeah he described that in his in the interview i did with him and that's a big i know that's a big part of his story so you you came in on thursday so that was your first day in AA, was that, do you also count that as your sobriety birthday, that day? Uh, yes, yeah. This has been such a fascinating story. This is kind of the backstory, but one of the things I, I and it's been fascinating, I, I didn't realize you went through what you went through, and from your childhood on through your adolescence to all the trauma that you had uh, while you were in the Philippines to uh, continuing to drink throughout the years, and then you get sober 30 years ago. And, uh, of course, I, I, I know about some of the, the gifts that you have enjoyed together with Wes because he mentioned some of them. But I wondered if you could just elaborate on, on just a few things that have occurred during your sobriety that you would consider one of those things that you couldn't have made it through had you still been drinking, and maybe some other things that are were absolute gifts of sobriety. Could could you kind of zero in on a few of those for me? I think because I I do a dual diagnosis program, because I'm bipolar and I'm an alcoholic with probably mm-hmm. some substance abuse in there, <laughs> most likely. <laughs> yeah. So you know, being an alcoholic addict. Um, <clears throat> And how crazy of an alcoholic I am. I mean, I don't have to have drugs, just the alcohol. You know, the wild Indian thing? Me. So I don't think, I mean, I drive fast. You know, my whole thing is let's get let's get naked <laughs> and drive fast. Let's get drunk, naked, and drive fast. That's how it was. Yeah, let's get yeah. drunk, naked, and drive fast. That was a Texas thing. We had. I just went, Yeah. I get that. <laughs> that sounds real. That. So that was my motto for a long time. And so uh, at, at when in my drinking days, you know, so I have a level of intensity that is super intense. And, so, and, be, and I think probably because of the bipolar, you know, but so I don't like have just a little excitement. I have excitement. 
I get it. Yeah. A lot of us do deal with, and I do myself because I've got clinical depression, we deal with mental health issues and that do inform uh, our alcoholism and make it sometimes doubly difficult to to stay on the straight and narrow when we're feeling that way, plus realizing we need to stay sober. Were, were there any times during that 30 years where you thought your sobriety might be in jeopardy, or have you always stuck towards the middle? I think that, the, that there's been challenges, um, and the challenges have worked, made me work my program harder. Uh, you know, I think, the, I think the challenges are the pay attention time. Okay, so... You know, if I'm thinking about drinking, pay attention, <laughs> you know, or if I'm noticing stuff or, you know. So that's a warning signal for you when you start to feel that way. Yeah, I have like what I call the red flags. So as I go by, I put a red flag. And if I can see the red flag, then yeah. I can take action before I hit the red flag or go right past the red flag. So, <clears throat> so I have these little red flags set up here. And hmm. there are different hmm. kinds of behaviors that are red flags for mm -hmm. me. Sometimes, uh, I mean, I have a little PTSD from the Philippines and and now the surgery thing and yeah. from the sexual abuse thing. So, yeah. I, I mean, I've got a lot of triggers. So um, I've really, yeah. really have to work a very hard program. I don't get the latitude of... Yeah doing a geographic, whatever that is. I mean, it, you know, uh, I have to bring my program yeah. with me. I I mean, poor, <laughs> poor little uh, Tanya. I mean, I 12-stepped her when I was coming out of my stent operation. <laughs> uh, right on. Yeah, so yeah, yeah she, she comes to our meeting from... From Memphis, yeah. And that's how she's Memphis. my, that's my amazing. sponsee, yeah. So do you, she's your Zoom sponsee, too, isn't she? She's Yeah, I Zoom her uh, before I came out uh, to do the surgery thing. And then when I came out to do okay. the surgery thing, it was the first time we met in person in the same city. You've been sponsoring her since before you had your procedure? Just right, yeah. Yeah, and then you go back, and then I come back to Colorado, and that's when she gets an, introduced to the Zoom meetings. That's so cool, yeah. And she stayed sober this whole time too, which is, I think, really astounding. Yes, and and she's getting it. Well, the thing I noticed about her, and what I know about her that reflects on you, is she wants to be in the middle. She wants to be protected by the fellowship by doing service work and by staying engaged. And so she's taken on some responsibilities in that Zoom meeting. And so to me, I'd look at a person like that and say, wow, that sponsor of hers must be really doing a good job. Well, we talk, I talk a lot and I talk a lot about living this program and living the program means that you have to do, do yeah. you have to have your commitments, you know, and commitments will keep you sober mm -hmm. sometimes when... <laughs> Uh, you know, I'm going to go to drink, but I can't do that. I got to have a commitment. You know, uh, I've heard that. I've heard. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes service work is the only thing that'll stand in the way. Right. Yes. I've heard that over and over. So I really encourage that. Uh huh. I tell her about what the rooms are, you know, why we're there, mm -hmm. what we're what we're looking to do as being the alcoholic in recovery, you know, and what we're mm -hmm. doing yeah. and I, you yeah. know and I'm 
in as far as the anonymity, I said, I'm not, I don't care about my anonymity. It's all kind of blown anyway. So <laughs> with her anonymity and her husband being as a high profile guy, I didn't think it was good for her to just show uh -huh. up and go, oh, hi. And because the meetings aren't full of musicians and creative types. And if they did, uh -huh. then they would want to get close to her for all the wrong reasons. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. So I wanted her to come to this meeting at, because there is the level of sobriety that I would feel comfortable leaving her in the hands of while I kind of get myself up on track here, you know, bounce back front. Well, it's not been so much of a bounce. It's been kind of a crawl back. It has been really tough. And I mean, yeah. and I, the detox was tough. Yeah, from all those pain meds, yeah. Well, they're giving you, and, and they're screwing up, and the way they're screwing up is they're, you know, you've got opiates. The opiates will kill you if you take too many of them. But if you are on long-term opiates and you're managing it, I had to be really careful with how I managed everything. You know, towards the end there, they came up to me and said, well, you know, we have this long acting one. We can you can take less pills. And that's all they told mm -hmm. me. But what they don't tell you is, is OK, we're going to cut off now. You can't have any more. All right. They just don't get it, do they? No, they don't get it. They, you have to titrate down these things. But the the evil thing, and this is why we're having problems with the opiate crisis, is because, because of these long-acting yeah. opiates they're putting us on. Okay, I have come off the regular opiates several times because I have all the surgery I went through, okay? Right. And then when taking the longer acting, the long acting 12 hour ones, you know, mm -hmm. you come off of that. It's long acting still. It took me two mm. weeks to come off of this drug. Two weeks, which wow. normally would have only taken me three days. <laughs> Sticks around in your system for a while. It sticks around in your system, but it's a time-release thing they're doing, and it stays. So you, it accumulates as you take it, uh -huh. and so when you when it's time to come off of it, there is no cold turkey off of it in a way that's not extremely painful <laughs> and long. That must have been pretty scary for you, getting to experience withdrawal from the opiates. Did you ever feel like that was threatening you and your sobriety, or was, was it a non-issue? One of the things that I found, and I got this square uh, early in my sobriety, I went to an anesthesiologist because I said, I need to know because mm -hmm. I'm hearing a lot of stuff in the room and I am not trusting a lot of what I'm hearing, yeah. <laughs> you know? And so she said, well, here, let me tell you what it's like. And she says, first of all, you guys are the hardest to work with. <laughs> I went, yes, you're right. We are. And I said, um, she says, the problem is when we give you these medications and that, and mm -hmm. you take the medications, you rarely take them as prescribed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and she says um, that can be due to the addiction, you know, and that. Yeah. Or, But what happens is when you don't do it as prescribed, you get in trouble. So uh -huh. average alcoholic goes in there and they think, I'm not taking anything for pain. I'm in recovery and I'm not going to take anything for pain except Tylenol. And they get a knee replacement. <laughs> Something, try doing that on Tylenol. Good luck. <laughs> and, 
So, I mean, I've had some knee surgery, not knee replacement, thank God, but that was enough for me. And I went, wow. And so they have you, when you come out of a something like a knee surgery, you have a minimum of two weeks where you're right. taking it either four to six hour swing, you know, every four hours or every, from four hours yeah. you move up into the six yeah. hours is how it works. Yeah, you gotta get ahead of the pain as you're you healing. You have to stay ahead of the pain. But what these alcoholics are doing, they're like, uh, and the pain gets ahead of them. They, they take too much medication, then they're out because they've already taken too much. Yeah. Because they, they've taken more than prescribed. If you take more than prescribed, you've slipped. Yeah, and it's built in. And by that point, the person is already taking the, is already taking the, the opioid. So trying to reason with them while they're in a terrific amount of pain because they didn't take as directed, it, it's like it, it snowballs, doesn't it? It really does snowball, yeah. Well, so you, you went through that. You've been able to share that, I, I would expect, with others in the program. Yeah, and that's, that's, that's been some experience, strength, and hope I've been able to those that will listen. Um, but That's a great service, though, these days, Victoria, because there's so many people who are dying from opioids out there and people from our rooms who are dying. And it's a lot of because of ignorance. Yeah, and ignorance and a certain amount of innocence. You know, people go in, and if the doctor says, yeah, here, take this opioid for two weeks or whatever else, they they figure because they're sober, they don't have to be as vigilant as if they were still drunk, right? So that's got to be tough. What happens with the opioid piece, okay, is that, and this is the reason yeah. I started writing everything down, because I've, ha I've had three surgeries on mm -hmm. my neck, one in my lower back, one in my shoulder. I had two in my right knee. I have, mm -hmm. uh, I think, uh, one in each ankle, okay? So <laughs> this, this was all in sobriety? Since I came to Colorado, oh my God. Since 2000, since 2000, oh my goodness. I've had, like, in counting the latest ones, so that was 31 yeah. or 32 sur surgeries? Surgeries, not procedures, surgeries. Oh my, oh my God, that's and I just was like, wow. I, uh, yeah, wow. and so I'm like done with surgery. <laughs> I don't want to have any more surgery. You know, that may happen in the future, but I'm not having it. If, I'm, it's got to be really where I can't deal with what I've got going on. Then I'll go in and have surgery. But it, no. So your experience, strength, and hope is really contemporary because all of this has happened to you and you've been able to stay sober through it. That has been probably my story. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, that's astounding. If that was your only story, Victoria, yeah. and, and the rest of your story wasn't as rich as it really is, if that was your mm -hmm. only story, I could see that saving lives. I mean, people knowing that here's a woman who's gone through hell with surgeries and also all the other stuff, and you've stayed sober. Handling the medications, because here's the deal. You, like you said, the doctors say, hey, do this. Um, what I, because I was on medications for a, an extended period of time with this and right. the lower back thing, well, this, this, and this, I slept yeah. on black ice uh, yeah. walking my dog. With that, I mean, I've had a lot of practice. <laughs> and, and so you have. You know, every time I go down the tunnel, I call it the rabbit hole. You know, I go down the rabbit hole. You know, I know I'm going down the rabbit hole. I bone up my program before I go down the rabbit hole, you know. 
I, 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 get, I, yeah. I get myself as aligned as I possibly can. How do you get spiritually prepared? Well, I, oh. I, I pray all the time. So yeah. spiritual prep for me for doing, uh, for having surgery or something like that. Okay. Um, I do a weird thing. I do sweat lodges, which is really a derogatory term. It's actually a prayer lodge, a Native American prayer lodge. Yeah. And they have a, it's like a igloo and blankets and they bring in hot rocks and you pour water on. Yeah, I've done it. I've done it. It's great. It's great. It's an amazing experience. Yeah. You got to come up and got to come up and come sit in our lodge, man. You have one in your yard? Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. It's just like right out there. <laughs> So you've you've been uh, so you've been able to augment your spiritual life in AA with a Native American uh, spiritual practice. Would you say that that's rounded you out your spirituality? I think so. Uh, I think it when you do the ceremony, at least if you do the ceremony with us, I can say that when you come out of it, you just it's a love fest. It is just you are so mellow you'd think we were doing drugs <laughs> yeah we are doing the yeah, best drugs yeah no i get drugs. that yeah. yeah i mean we're doing the best drugs here lodges create an altered state of consciousness so when we come out yeah, we have do. people lay, lay around on the back if it's not too cold you know you lay around in your blanket out and on the lawn yeah. out back and then but we have food you eat first so it's a potluck thing and then after you eat and everybody's talked and kibitzed about what their experience was or whatever you know then everybody mm. we get them so that they're in their bodies enough to drive i don't <laughs> I feel responsible because <laughs> when i don't know if you've ever driven after love <laughs> one of the things i yes. wanted to kind of before we wrap things up i wanted to just ask you uh how would you describe your serenity right now and today and this week and in the last, let's say, few months? Well, I would say when everything got bad and I yeah. lost the last of the Kaiser round um, yeah, and it came out, I just started hitting a bottom. Uh, like I uh, and uh, mm. it's not like heating a bomb spiritual bottom like we talk about in the program um, yeah because I'm a person I pray you know if I, I pray for everybody all the time but I couldn't pray for myself I couldn't pray for anybody I got that down I now have the experience mm. of being near dead <laughs> and mm -hmm. That's kind of what I, that was what I was looking at. If this hadn't worked, you know, um, that would have been it. That kind of yeah, I was down at the last bits. I was at the last bits. I had the I had the conversation with Wes, yeah. you know, about my stuff. You know, he says okay, and I was too tired. Yeah. I was too exhausted to even like go. Could you give this to so and so? Could you give that to so and so? Could you? Yeah. I started it and I went. Wes, figure it out. Give to whoever you want. It's not going to make a damn bit of difference if I'm gone. So mm. <laughs> just enjoy who you give it to is what I said. It's just enjoy that part. But um, but that's the conversation we had on our way to, to Memphis um, for the surgery. Mm. But by the time we got there, I mean, I was just I was just hanging on by my fingernails. I mean... 
It was bad. I couldn't eat anything because mm. it all just go through. Uh, even if I stuffed myself, there was nothing to digest it with. Yeah. You know. <laughs> and so. I get that. So uh, you know, I feel really fortunate in that you reach a level of serenity. I maybe people see this in hospice or something, um, but I re- reached a level of serenity at that time of really just surrendering the whole thing. I mean, I surrendered um, the drive. I surrendered. Yeah. The, I, I surrendered, you know, just the whole thing, you know, because I just didn't know what was going to happen, so I just surrendered it all. I have found that when I completely surrender everything at my core level, there's nothing left that I, you know, I've gotten there. And, but this goes even further. I mean, it's like, it's a scary kind of surrender. And um, it's scary more from the hindsight than being in it. Because in the hindsight, you can see all the parts around it. Sure. And I I was in denial at that time. And I I thought I can get there. I can get there. I know God's with me. And I'm talking to other alcoholics. They're texting me. They're engaging me. So what this sounds like to me is that you are at the point of truly, truly, truly letting go. Well, I think pretty much by that time, I really felt I was on the wings of angels. You know, having surrendered at that level, I am just now, just now, like in the past couple of weeks, been able to pray. I mean, I could say words, but no connection. I didn't have it. I couldn't get it up enough to do that for myself or for others. It's if I just keep one foot in front of the other, I'm off all of the opiates. I'm off all of the drugs that are going to kill me. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh huh. And um, and now I'm, uh, you know, going into this next phase here, um, being in recovery with that. I had gotten to a point yeah. where my ability to wrap around the concepts were uh, yeah. iffy, and. Yeah. So when I had the surgery done, but they had me under for like what was supposed to be an hour and a half, uh, turned into three and a half hour surgery. When I came to, I, I, there's this thing called um, anesthesia, uh, like a hysteria. Yeah. Uh-huh. Parent, uh huh. You get paranoid hysteria. Uh, I yanked out my breathing tube by myself. And I yanked out everything that was attached to me. <laughs> I think I told mm. them I'm going home. <laughs> oh, God. And I was going for it. And they caught me, <laughs> hauled me back to the bed, had to put in all my new IVs. But they didn't have to intubate you at that point because you were already awake and breathing, right? No. already. Yeah, I was already awake and breathing. So they just... But, the, you know... So I was there for a week, and yeah. um, and I and I worked really hard. And one of the things I do do that I, I add to my program, I'm a hypnotherapist, so I use a lot of self hypnosis to help me get past fear and um, apprehension, and that. And mm-hmm. I, and I was using that, 
but the psychological stuff started the um, PTSD physical manifestations yeah. started up after the last Kaiser thing came out and then I had to wait right. um, that whole time so I was able to kind of use the hypnosis to kind of keep because I was backing off the opiates alright so if you know anybody that's having surgery they're on opiates and they have enough time you know uh is to back down off their opiates to as least as they can tolerate it mm -hmm. they'll still have to deal with whatever they're dealing with but yeah you need it on the back end when you're coming out of surgery i've had three back operations you know. and have been under general at least three times and mm -hmm. I yeah I know exactly what you're talking about but what a mm -hmm. incredible service you can be to others who are facing similar situations I can imagine there are a lot of people whose lives have been improved by your story and I'm, I'm so glad you shared as much as you did with me today I know a lot of it was tough to share and my hope is that when people hear this interview, that they'll hear some of the things that you talked about with a hopeful sense of maybe I can do it too. Well, we can do it, you know, and, and the importance of getting your sober posse is just beyond words. Ksenia, yeah. okay, my sober sister yeah. that I met my first year of sobriety, right? She FaceTimed me every day. And she said, you know, on the other side, she says, I am so glad you're better. <laughs> I'm so glad you're better. You know, I don't know what I was, you look so bad. I was so scared. So I had to call you every day. <laughs> I love her to pieces. And she, she is such a good heart, such a good heart. And yeah, but that's what the program does. You know, yeah, I was in trouble. I hadn't talked to her in a while. She knew I was in trouble. She gets on her phone, her, her, you know, the messenger. We do it through the messenger thing, you know, yeah. WhatsApp. And uh -huh. we do that. And, you know, um, to me, Zoom, I think, is much more intimate yeah. than being in, in a room, you know, uh, because we can all see each other's eyes and expressions and stuff. Uh and environs. I mean, just being able to see a person in their own space is an intimate thing, isn't it? Yeah, you can see my disaster here. This is my loss of. It looks like a woman who's well engaged in life. I mean, it's it's a beautiful it's a beautiful thing, yeah. and you're beautiful. Oh, and thank I appreciate you. thank you, thank you, thank I appreciate you. you doing this today. I just want to tell you how glad I am that you and I have become friends, fellow travelers on this road of of happy destiny. Fellow travelers. And I love you, and I just want to say that mm -hmm. I'm grateful for you doing this today. And if there's ever anything that I can do, sure, I want to be considered part of that posse. Absolutely. Well, thanks again, Victoria, for spending some time with me today. Oh, you're so welcome. I hope I helped somebody. <laughs> it's been beautiful. Thank you so much. Well, my friends, that's it for this episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Victoria H., for sharing her story. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you help me spread the word by sharing it with your fellow AAs both before and after meetings? As the number of listeners grows, this podcast will be of greater help to more and more alcoholics worldwide. 
Of course, you can listen to all of the interviews on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to listen to every episode, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's Howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, no advertising is allowed, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.